0: Well, good morning, Summit Church. Uh, let me just tell you what happened at all of our campuses um, around the Triangle, at all 10 of our campuses, a different story was heard about God's saving work in somebody's um, life. Um, isn't it awesome for us to have a chance to be a part of a church where we get to see God doing these kinds of, of new and fresh things in people's lives really all over the Triangle. Could we put our hands together one more time and celebrate um, with Thanksgiving what God is doing? It is amazing and it is something that I hope that you will never take for granted. Um, Last week was an amazing week here at the Summit Church. We had over 14,000 people at our services. Uh, Several people uh, came forward to make decisions last week. So let me go ahead and explain to you that today is the day that we are going to extend an invitation to you at all of our campuses to be baptized as a public profession of your faith if you have never done so. At the end of every service at every campus, we're going to offer an invitation for you to come and be baptized today. Baptism, we often explain, it's is, is, is the public ceremony, if you will, um, of deciding to follow Jesus. It's the official declaration that you're going all in with Him. Jesus commands us, every believer commands us to do it after we trust Him as Savior. And we know that there are many of you um, at one of our campuses that have yet to do that. I know that some of you say, well, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a big, it's a ritual. It doesn't really affect my my walk with God or my faith one way or the other. Yes, I I understand that, but it is a command that Jesus gives us. And I would just tell you that it is not a good practice in your Christian life for you to selectively ignore certain commands that Jesus gave. What did you think you were doing when you agreed to follow Jesus as Lord? When you said, I will follow him as Lord, that means you will obey what he says. And the very first thing he said that you were to do after you became a follower of his is to express that by being baptized publicly as a profession of your faith. Furthermore, what I have seen is that God uses that moment of baptism as a moment spiritually, significantly in your life to solidify and to mark your faith. There are many of you that are listening to me that are brand new Christians. Um, You've become Christians in the last um, week. Um, couple weeks Uh, some of you may become Christians today and uh, so of course you've never done this um, and so we want to give you a chance to do it others of you listening to me have been Christians for a while uh, maybe years um, but you've simply never taken this step today is your day there are many of you that were baptized as a child some of you as a baby before you really understood who Jesus was Um, that was a decision that your parents made for you and we think that's awesome We think it's awesome that your parents made that decision. We want to invite you to ratify that decision by choosing to be baptized on your own. In scripture, baptism is always, without exception, a public profession of your faith. So here's what I want all of you to think about for the next few minutes. Here's the question Am I prepared to follow Jesus wherever he leads in my life? And if so, am I willing to demonstrate that by obeying him in this area? Let me say that again. Are you ready to follow Jesus in all areas of your life? And if so, are you ready to demonstrate that by obeying Him in this area? You might say, well, I didn't come prepared, Pastor. I'd love to do it, but we are prepared for you. We are experts at this. We have all that you'll need. We have towels, modest black shorts, and t-shirts, changing areas, hair product, deodorant. We got it all. There's nothing you can think of that we Um, don't have um, ready for you at whatever campus. Uh, You say, well, I didn't really want to get wet when I came to church today. You may not have that option uh, just looking outside. So um, we'll just say, let's put the excuses up and let's do today what we know God has called us to do. Um, We'll come back to that at the very end. But if you have your Bible right now, I want you to invite you to take that out and open it to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bible. Today is our third and final message of um, a little series we've done called Unknown God, which is a series in which we've been exploring the question, can we actually know whether God exists? And if so, what can we know about Him? We've been trying to take, I hope, an honest look at some of the difficult questions about the existence of God. Excuse me. During the first week, we looked at how creation points us toward a creator. Creation, the Apostle Paul tells us, is like a voice that's constantly calling out to us, suggesting to us that God is there. There are certain people who come up with reasons to ignore that voice, or maybe they reason themselves out of why that's not really the voice of God. But the point was, it's an instinctive response to what we see in creation. We just kind of respond and think, well, there's a God behind that. The second week we saw how there are really good reasons to believe that the voice of God was speaking in Jesus. Today I want us to look at certain distortions of God that people reject thinking they are rejecting the real God when in fact what they are rejecting is a distortion of God that ought to be rejected. In fact that's the irony, the tragedy. In rejecting these false views of God that ought to be rejected many people miss the real God. The tendency to reshape or reimagine God in a new form has been a major problem for all of human history, which is why, probably why, God addresses it in the second commandment he ever gave to mankind. Second commandment of the Big Ten, number two of the Big Ten, reads like this You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. The key word there is image. This is a command not to add any image or any shape in our minds to God that God has not already given to himself. Now see, we got to be really careful not to confuse the second commandment with the first commandment. They look similar, but they're different. The first commandment says this, you shall have no other gods before me. That is a command not to worship other gods besides God. The second command is a command not to worship the right God in the wrong way. Does that make sense? This is a command not to worship other gods besides God. This is a command not to worship the right God in the wrong way. We violate the second commandment when we add something to God, some image in our minds, some opinion that goes beyond or contrary to what God tells us about Himself in His Word. The fact that this command comes second of all of them shows us that it's something we are likely to break, even though I would say most of us don't think about it that often. This was, in fact, the command that Israel literally broke before Moses had even returned from the mountain where he received the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, Exodus 32, if you got your Bible, flip over there. Uh, That's where we'll be for the rest of the time. Um, Moses, uh, if you know this story, had gotten delayed up on the mountain with God um, where he was receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people panicked. They're like, well, Moses is not coming back. Moses is dead. God's forgotten about us. God doesn't care. God's not even real. So they took off their jewelry, they melted it down, and they constructed a golden calf to represent God. The promises of an invisible God were not enough for them. Not when they had real enemies that wanted to kill them. Not when they had real needs that needed to be met. So they said, we need a God that we can touch, a God that we can see, a God that we can hang on to. Now I want you to notice that the narrator of this story makes clear that with the golden calf, Israel was not worshiping a new God. Well, watch this. They were simply worshiping the real God in the wrong way. Watch this. When Aaron, he was the guy in charge of all this, saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Notice Lord is in all caps in your Bible, right? Whenever you see that, that means it's um, God's covenant name. It's a name that he only used with Israel. So we're not talking about a different God. This is a festival that they have made to the real God. And they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. Pagan revelry means open orgy. Literally in Hebrew it reads Franklin Street. That's what it says right there um, at the end of that paragraph. Um, They added an image to God that they thought would work better for them. But that new God was insufficient to save them. I mean think about it, that new God, that golden calf couldn't even speak to them. He couldn't comfort them, they had to dance for Him. He couldn't even move himself from place to place. They had to carry him. The true God had promised to supply all their needs. He had promised to protect them from uh, from danger. He had promised to feed them when they were uh, hungry, to satisfy them when they were thirsty. One day he would give his life to redeem them. They traded this God for an image of a cow that would serve as a good luck charm made out of leftover jewelry. And see, here's what would happen. Inevitably, this image of God would fail them because he wasn't real. It was something they had projected onto god and here's the irony when that golden calf failed them when he failed them people would be like see god's not real but what was not real what was not real the golden calf was not god's idea it was their idea they projected onto god furthermore this image of god corrupted them spiritually that's why the author points out that their worship led to an orgy if our hearts are spiritually dark which scripture tells us that they are then any God we project out of our hearts is also going to be dark. So rather than transforming our dark hearts, that image of God just ends up reflecting our dark hearts back to us. So let me repeat, make sure you get this. Satan's strategy from the beginning has been to twist our view of God beyond what God has said about himself, and then have us reject that distorted view, thinking that we're rejecting the true God. That's been his strategy from the beginning. It's the ultimate chutzpah. You know, chutzpah, uh, when you think about it, you know, the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day had a definition for chutzpah. Um, Their definition of chutzpah was the kid that kills his mom and dad and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. That's chutzpah. Satan's chutzpah is he lies to us about God, gives us this false image of God, then lets that image of God let us down, and we reject that image of God thinking we're rejecting the real thing. Let me show you a few places he does this in the Bible, and then I'm going to show you more places that he does it in our our, our modern culture. All right, let's go back to the very beginning. You don't need to turn there in your Bible, I'll just kind of walk you through these. Um, Satan's first deception in the Garden of Eden went like this, watch this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want you to see what Satan did there. It's really subtle, but you can see it. He presents God to Eve as if God is an insecure God. And God, because he's insecure, makes these rules to keep us down so that we won't threaten his position. His rules are arbitrary and oppressive because they come not from wisdom, they come from jealousy. Eve, of course, recognizes that such a God would not be worthy of worship, and so Eve rejects that God. You see what Satan's doing there? All right, um, here's another one. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day, like Thomas, were convinced that a God who really loved them would liberate them from Roman oppression immediately. So let's think of this as the instant deliverance God. So when Jesus doesn't do that, guess what? They say, well, see, God has let us down. He's not trustworthy, and they reject Him. Job in the Bible, we talked about him the first week. He doubted God because Satan planted in his heart the idea that Job would be immediately able to understand the reasoning and the justice behind whatever God did. Let's call this the immediately understandable God. And so when Job couldn't figure out what God was doing, he assumed God must not exist. When God finally appeared to Job, he basically says, Job, why would you assume that you can understand all of my ways? And then he begins to ask Job a series of questions like, hey, Job, where does the lightning come from? Hey, Job, have you made any stars? Job, if you don't even know the answers to some of these natural questions, do you really feel like you're going to be in a place to understand my secret counsels? Immediately understandable God is a myth that Satan created and causes many people to doubt God because they assume something about him that's not true. So one more time, Satan's primary strategy has been to spin up distorted conceptions about God and then destroy our faith when they let us down to note, listen to this, there are 8,747 false images of God in the Bible. So this is Satan's full-time job. I'm not going to walk you through all of them. What I'm going to do though is today's going to be a little different, let me acknowledge that. I'm just going to give you a few of what I see as the top distortions of God that I see Satan doing this with today. This is a list I've compiled from others as as well as a few of my own here. Um, Ways that Satan lies about God and then gets us to reject the God that's actually a false image of him. You ready? Um, here we go. Here's the first one. Goosebumps, God. At least that's well, what I would call him. Goosebumps, God. This is the God, the idea that if God is real, you'll always be able to feel him. He'll give you goosebumps. He'll give you feelings of peace, overpowering emotions in your heart. And so if you can't feel him, well, then he must not really be there. But let me ask you, where does your Bible ever say that you will always be able to feel the presence of God? Lots of people in the Bible couldn't feel the presence of God, even when He was there. In fact, so much of the book of Psalms comes from believers saying, God, where are you? I can't feel you. One of my favorite and not favorite Psalms, Psalm 88, um, right in the middle of the Psalm, right toward the end of the Psalm, the Psalm writer says this, "Um, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Darkness is my only friend. That's the last phrase of the verse. Darkness is my only friend. Um, I mean, that, that's one of those songs that when you get to it in your quiet time, you're like, I'm not really sure what to do with this. Like, I don't feel blessed and encouraged. How do I go throughout that? Darkness is my only friend. You have distanced yourself from me. This was a worship song. Can you imagine singing this in church? You know, the last phrase, darkness is my only friend. God has abandoned me. Okay, you guys can be seated be blessed. That's what, that's what they sang. Because they felt like God wasn't. There they couldn't feel it. Even Jesus on the cross cried out, God, where are you? C.S. Lewis wrote about a time. C.S. Lewis, you know, C.S. Lewis is the last author in the canon. That came 2,000 years after all the other Bible writers. Uh, the way we quote him, you would think that. Um, but C.S. Lewis himself wrote about a time where he didn't, couldn't sense God's presence in his life. And it's in a book called A Grief Observed. It was after his, his wife had died. He says, I, I went to God during that time and it seemed like it was a door slammed in my face then I heard the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence there were no lights in the windows it feels like an empty house why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent of help in our time of trouble that's C.S. Lewis somehow that quote never makes it on everybody's Facebook page of favorite C.S. Lewis quotes I've yet to see that one but see it's real A lot of Christians have been in situations where they could not feel the presence of God. The God of constant goosebumps does not exist. We made Him up. The real God tells us that we are to walk not by feeling, but by faith. You see, a lot of Christians base their understanding of how God feels about them or their sense of the perception of the presence of God, they base it on how they feel. Well, I feel like God is absent. I feel like God is mad at me. I feel like He's distant. Our feelings are not reliable indicators of reality. If I wake up tomorrow morning and I say, I don't feel married, I'm not going to tell that to my wife, because it doesn't change the fact that I am married, right? There's some realities are not based on how we feel. Your feelings, let me tell you something that would really change your life if you could get your mind around this. Your feelings don't have brains. Your feelings do not have a mind to think for themselves. Your mind is supposed to think for your feelings and sometimes tell your feelings that what your feelings are telling you are not really accurate. That's why psalm writers often find, we find them talking to themselves in the Bible. Psalm 103, for example, begins like this, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name.'" You know, in the Psalms, sometimes Psalms are written to other people. Sometimes they're written to God. Who is this Psalm written to? Himself. I'm writing me a song. Because you know what my soul doesn't feel like right now? It doesn't feel like blessing the Lord. And it doesn't even feel like God is real. So I'm going to tell myself, what is true about God based on His Word and based on what He has done at the cross and resurrection. And I'm going to tell my soul, your feelings are not reliable indicators of reality. God's Word is a reliable indicator of reality. So bless the Lord, all my soul. You see, in Christianity, we don't feel our way into our beliefs. We believe our way into our feelings. The God of goosebumps does not exist, He is a figment of our imagination and Satan has caused many of us to believe in Him and then reject that God when that God fails us, but it was never true of God to begin with. Here's a second one, Um, smooth sailing God. With smooth sailing God, we assume that if God is on our side, life will not work out great or life will work out great. And so when bad things happen to good people, what do we assume? Well there must not be a God. This is the God to whom the athlete prays when, you know, he quotes four, Philippians 4.13 before he shoots a foul shot. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if Christ is in me, then I know I'll make this foul shot. And you're like, well, where did God promise that? You know, I see sometimes see two wrestlers, both with Philippians 4.13 tattooed to their arm, getting ready to wrestle each other. And I think, well, this is an interesting theological problem. <laughs> I wonder who, which God versus God, who's going to win? You know, maybe one of them has it memorized in Greek. I bet he's the one that's going to win or, or something like that. But where does Scripture say that bad, unfortunate, or unfair things will not happen to good people? You don't get that from the Bible. I mean, think about it. Christianity started with a horrible thing happening to a very good person. The whole Christian movement was built on really good people with really bad things happening to them. So where did you get the idea that smooth sailing was the proof of the presence of God? Simply listen, you didn't get that from the Bible. You didn't get that from Christian teaching. If you lost faith in smooth sailing God, good, congratulations, he doesn't exist, you should have left him behind. What scripture does teach us is that God will never abandon us, even in pain, and that ultimately he's going to use all pain for our good and his glory. Sometimes God will prosper us financially, sometimes God will prosper us in sports, he'll prosper us relationally. Sometimes God will prosper us spiritually, even when all those other things are falling apart. You know, to go back to Philippians 4.13 specifically, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You should read the verse right before that one. Which, by the way, all your favorite verses, just make sure you're doing them right, so go back and read the verse right before the verse. What Paul says in Philippians 4 is, I have learned, Paul writes that, by the way, when he's bankrupt, in prison, and all of his friends have abandoned him. And he says, I have learned how to be joyful when I have everything and when I got nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The all things he is referring to is not all of his foul shots going in. The all things he is referring to is having nothing or having all of it. It's smooth sailing or rough seas. I've learned that God can sustain me in both. Closely related to that one is what I would call on-demand God. On-demand God, that's the God we believe will always give us what we ask as long as our requests are, are, are fair and thoughtful, if it's reasonable and we're really convinced that we need it, then God's gonna give it to us just like we expect him to. And so, of course, when God doesn't deliver on the timetable that we think he should deliver on, we assume that he doesn't really exist. Again, where did you get this idea of God? Personally, I'm glad that God does not exist because if God had given me everything that I had asked for when I was 15 or 16 years old, My life would be a wreck. I think about some of the girls that I asked God to make fall in love with me. (laughs) I mean, dodged a bullet on some of those, uh, right? This might be the only place where I agree with Garth Brooks. I thank God for unanswered prayer. When Jesus gave us the model prayer, he he started, Jesus started the model prayer off with three phrases that totally debunk on-demand God. Number one, our Father who art in heaven. When you approach God, you're approaching Him the way a child does trustingly with a father. My son asks me for lots of things that I deny to him, not in spite of the fact that I love him, but because I love him. My seven-year-old son is convinced he needs his own iPad, and he will make a really compelling case. Just ask him about why he should have his own iPad, and it totally makes sense to him. And I have denied that request and will continue to for the next several years, not in spite of the fact that I love him, but because I love him. So I approach God with the same attitude. Um, our Father who art in heaven, how holy is your name, um, your kingdom come. God, I realize that at the end of the day that what your agenda is, is your kingdom, and what's best for me personally may not be best for your kingdom, and what's best for your kingdom may not be best for you personally, so I surrender to that. Your will be done. I understand that, that at the end of the day, your will is better than mine because you're a lot smarter than me, and so I'm going to tell you what I think I need, but at the, at the end of the day, I'm going to trust what you're going to give me, what you know that I need. And so there in those three phrases, you protect your heart with celebration and surrender and faith, and only then are you in a place where you can ask the other request. On demand, God doesn't exist. Yet, many people walked away from the faith because they assumed that's what the Bible taught about God. You see see what we're doing? Here's another one, killjoy God. Killjoy God is the God who comes up with endless rules to oppress you, control you. And just generally he's out to kill your buzz he hates all pleasure especially sexual pleasure he hates sexual pleasure it irritates him to see you have a really good time he's like the detention hall teacher who wants to make sure that you don't have any fun in your life on earth in the words of the great theologian kanye west how come everything that is supposed to be bad makes me feel so good so let me ask you the question where did you get the idea of kill joy god the god of the bible created joy and laughter and, and even sex this is why the psalm writer psalm sixteen eleven says God in your presence is fullness of joy it's your right hand or pleasures forevermore fullness means joy that couldn't get any bigger forevermore means pleasure that couldn't last any longer he says this is where it all comes from you and any rules or guidelines that God has is ultimately to increase our eternal pleasure where did you get that idea of God right well, let me give you a couple reasons I think people come to believe in this distorted view of God. The first is they just, they just don't trust God. At the end of the day, they just don't think he's a good God who desires the best for his children. So they think, you know, a little religion in your life is good. A little religion helps everybody, but don't go too serious with it because if you get too serious with Jesus, you're going to have an unhappy life. Let me ask you a question, my friend. Listen, if you feel like you can trust Jesus with your eternal soul, Don't you feel like you can trust him with your earthly happiness? If you can can give him your sin, don't you think you can give him your future, your finances, your marriage, your kids, and everything else? That's one place. It just comes from a lack of trust. Sometimes, however, the idea of killjoy God comes from growing up in an environment where constant rules were put on you in the name of God. And walking with God meant keeping all these regulations. Anybody grow up in an environment like that? At one of the schools that I went to growing up, they had rules for everything. You know, I've told you about some of them before. You couldn't drink or dance or chew or mess around with girls who do. Dancing was the worst of all sins, right? You couldn't have premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. Uh, That was, you know, the rule. And we could only read the King James Version of the Bible because that's what Jesus read. And it was good enough for him, it's good enough for you, right? So you had all these rules. Let me tell you where that mentality usually comes from. It comes from thinking that God's acceptance of us is based... On how well we conform to some set of laws Jesus showed up he taught the opposite in Jesus's day there were a group of people that I'm sure you've heard about called the Pharisees who'd come up with endless amounts of laws and regulations to be pleasing to God you can trace their existence the Pharisees existence you can trace it all the way back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in Ezra and Nehemiah that was when the children of Israel came back from captivity they'd been sent into captivity because they rejected God So after 70 years of captivity, God brings them back to the promised land. And they, listen to this, they were so afraid that they were going to do something that was going to make them God send them back into captivity, that they developed a thing that they called the hedge around the law. Hedge around the law, it was like this. If you imagine disobedience to the law as a pit, they didn't want to get anywhere near the pit, so they built a hedge around it. So that not only would you not disobey the laws of God, you would stay so far outside the hedge that there would be no danger of you disobeying the laws of God. And so they came up with, for example, 65 different laws about the Sabbath that were beyond what God had said. The Mishnah is the book that they used that contained all these laws, 800 pages of extraneous laws that would keep them from breaking the law of God. And Jesus showed up and just railed against them because he said, you, first of all, you don't understand why God accepts you. He doesn't accept you because of an outward conformity to a set of laws. He's a father who receives you by grace And when you realize that, you'll start to love Him and start to love others. And when that happens, when you love God and love others, you're going to obey all of His commands naturally. God doesn't want people who obey Him because that's how they gain His favor. He wants you to obey Him because you love Him, right? I mean, you know, I've told you, you don't ever have to compel me to eat a steak, um, take a nap, uh, kiss my wife, or buy gifts for my kids. You don't ever have to make laws about that. I love those things, so I do them naturally. And Jesus said, that's how God wants you to be with Him. And that's not going to be produced in you by a set of laws. That's going to be produced in you by an experience of love. And so, so killjoy God doesn't exist. It's come from misunderstanding of God. Now, here's another distortion I see that I think is particularly relevant for um, the triangle area. Um, Anti-science God. That's a God a lot of people end up thinking is out there. Many people walked away from the faith because they were told faith in God conflicted with the scientific method. And so when they got to college they felt like the undeniable findings of science were in contact and conflict with the unreliable teachings of their faith and so they left their faith so they could choose the scientific method and i always want to say who told you that christians launched the modern science movement um, people like galileo isaac newton francis sir francis bacon people today like francis collins they believe that because god created the universe Certain patterns were observable and identifiable. This scientific method was new with Christianity. It didn't exist in the pagan world because there was no sense trying to do science in a world that was controlled by the whims of the gods, but Christians believed God had given us minds that were able to detect the order He had built into creations. So where did you get the idea of anti-science God? I will admit Christians are partially to blame for this distortion. Because they have sometimes lazily used the Bible beyond what it was intended for. Listen, I believe the Bible is God's Word. I believe that it is without error. But I also think you got to know how to read it. Galileo wisely said, he was a very committed believer, God gave us the Scriptures to tell us how to go to Heaven. Not Not explain to us how the Heavens go. That means the authors employed certain kinds of language that took into account their limitations. There are certain statements that the Bible makes that are poetic or metaphorical. That didn't mean they're wrong, just that they're not designed to be scientific statements. Let me prove, this is, you do the same thing. Let me give you an example. Your five-year-old says to you, if you're a parent, where do babies come from? What is your answer? You ever seen an inexperienced parent with their first kid who tries to give too much detail? Right? It doesn't turn out well. So when you were an experienced parent, like for me, my third kid, I'd finally learned this, your answer is simply, they come from mommy's tummy. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. Now that's different than the answer you give to a 15 year old. It's different than the answer that the professor gives to a medical student, right? Does that mean that you're lying to or misleading your kid? No, it just means that you are not speaking to them in a scientifically specific way that is designed to communicate that kind of information. We speak like that, on that um, in different ways um, in other areas. Uh, for example, we say the sun rose or the sun set. Well, I mean, you know the sun didn't actually move, but we're not lying when we say that, it's just that our language there is not designed to convey scientific accuracy. You know, saying what time does the sun rise?" sounds better than saying what time does the earth slowly orbit until we can glimpse the sun again? What time is that happening tomorrow? It's just, right? A lot of the Bible is the same way. I believe the Bible, I believe every word of it is God's word, but I know that it fits hand in hand with the other book that God wrote, which is called creation. Sir Francis Bacon, who was called the architect of the scientific method, he, he, he said, God wrote two books. He wrote the Bible and he wrote creation. And when you see a conflict between the two of them, you got to keep pressing on to them because in the end, you're going to find out they agree. I apply that to the creation evolution debate. I am constantly evaluating what is the best way to understand the science and the Bible, knowing that the same author wrote them both. When it seems like there's a conflict, I'm going to keep pressing in on both, knowing that when I understand both properly, they're going to say the same thing. Anti-science God doesn't exist. Closely related to that is what I've heard called the the gap God. Now, when I say gap God, I don't mean the God that's in conflict with the American Eagle God or the Abercrombie God. Um, I mean, I mean the God who Christians kind of plug into whatever is unexplainable. In ancient days, um, whatever was unexplainable, they would just attribute to God. There's an earthquake. Oh, well, it must be that God's stomping his foot. It's raining. God must be crying. Lightning. God must be throwing somebody out of heaven. That's how they thought about that. Christians still appeal to this God today, sometimes with science or sometimes um, to explain why they got a parking space at South Point Mall, you know, right at the front. Oh, just Jesus knew I was late, Jehovah Jireh, He gave me the parking space, hallelujah, isn't He good? Uh, Maybe, maybe God gave you the parking space, I don't know. But our entire faith cannot be built on a God who just shows up to explain the unexplainable. Because here's the thing, listen, the list of physical things that we cannot explain is getting shorter and personally i'm glad for that i want science to figure out the cure to all diseases that we have the list of things that we can't explain is getting longer gaps in our knowledge have more to do with our ignorance than they do with god our faith does not depend on god being the plug in for unexplainable phenomena yeah you know, if anything the explainable is a better argument for god than the unexplainable I mean, take out your phone. I'll take it out, but you'll be too tempted to do something with it. But um, look at your phone. If you, if you know how it works, if you understand how the glass and the circuits and all the things working there together and how the Wi-Fi works, you could understand every component. If you understand that, that doesn't, that doesn't convince you that nobody made it. Understanding it convinces you even more that somebody had to have made it. Understanding the beauty of the world is, points you to the, the magnificence of the Creator, Richard Dawkins, here's what he says in The God Delusion. One of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it's a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. He's talking about the gap God right there. That God doesn't exist. God never said that about himself. So what you've got to do is reject the idea of the gap God and realize that the true God is is fundamentally different. The guilt God. This is a big one. This is the God who holds your past mistakes over your head and uses them to belittle you, to threaten you, and keep you down. Technically, this God may love you, but He doesn't really like you. You get on His nerves. And so you spend most of your life trying to get away from this God, and when you finally get rid of Him, you feel so liberated, right? Well, If you're one of those people that have left behind the guilt God, let me just say to you, congratulations. You should have left the guilt God behind because He never existed in the first place. The real God says, yes... You have sin and you mess things up. but I can transform you into a new creation. The real God cared so much about you that he took your sins upon himself. He didn't hang your sins over your head. He hung your sins on his head when he went to the cross. Let me encourage you, if you have been captive most of your life to the guilt God and finally shaken him off. Let me encourage you to consider the true God. Because see, here's what happens: When you shake off the idea of God altogether, you don't remove the problem of guilt. One of the best illustrations of this came from an atheist named Arthur Miller, who wrote a play called Death of a Salesman. Remember back in literature class, you probably had to read that, that play. Arthur Miller says, he says, "Um, I quit believing in God because I was tired of being hounded by guilt. He said, but after I threw off my belief in God, he said, the strangest thing happened. He said, I couldn't shake the feelings of guilt. I just transferred, I just transferred the feeling of inadequacy from God to the audiences I was trying to please. I needed to hear you're good and you're worthy and you're not guilty from somebody. So I lived and I died by audience reviews of my film because I desperately needed to hear you are accepted from somebody. He said, I realized that in losing my belief in God, I didn't lose my guilt. I simply transferred it to a different, a different place You were designed by God for Him, and there is something in your heart that craves that approval, and once you kick God off the throne, you're not going to get rid of that, you're just going to look for it in a new place, you're going to become codependent in marriage, you're going to become desperate for the affirmation of others, you need the real God, get rid of the guilt God, but look to the real God, because that's the one that um, that exists, that loves you and has pursued you. give you one more, one more real quick, the coexist God. coexist God, this is a lot of times a reaction to the guilt God. This is the God who accepts everybody and just wants you to be sincere and try your best, right? This is the God of Asheville, of UNC Chapel Hill. This is the God who sits up there. Three problems would coexist, God. Um, he just doesn't work, and if I could just say it really bluntly, because your heart was designed for the true God. You know, when the iPhone came out, I don't know why I got phones in the brain today, but uh, when the iPhone came out, uh, it was kind of controversial because. Steve Jobs had made it where you could not open the iPhone, and you couldn't tinker with it, and you couldn't add software to it. And that's kind of what they did in the computer world. And he said, no, 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 the iPhone is such a beautifully and intricately and perfectly designed device that if you try to jam other stuff into it, it's just going to mess it up. Now, whether or not that's true about the iPhone, I don't know, but that is certainly true about the human soul the human soul is so beautifully and perfectly designed by God that simply jamming in false conceptions of God is only going to mess it up. It's like St. Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you because we were designed for you. Here's the other problem with the coexist God is that he doesn't really ever confront you with your problems. The coexist God is just a reflection of your heart and all he does is affirm you. But do you realize that there are parts of you that probably should not be affirmed? that really ought to be confronted? We can see this in previous cultures, right? Um, You got a Viking guy, a a young man in his mid-twenties, he's a Viking, somebody's insulted his honor. What does his heart tell him to do? Go kill whoever insulted your honor so that you can restore your family name. Now that's what his heart's telling him. How many of you wanna look at him and say, just follow your heart because your heart is always gonna be a reliable guide to what you should do? No, we say no, your heart is telling you the wrong thing. Don't follow your heart. Yet in our day, we assume that whatever our heart tells us is true. Why would our heart always lead us correctly? There are parts of you that need to be confronted and coexist. God never confronts you; He just affirms you. He's a cosmic blanket in which you curl up in and find yourself. Some parts of you don't need to be found; they need to be lost because they are lost. So, coexist, God can't confront you. Here's your third problem. Coexist, God just doesn't exist. When I see the coexist God thing, I'm like, coexist. He doesn't exist to begin with. He's just a figment of your imagination. You know, it's like somebody writing a biography of you. I think I've explained this before. Imagine somebody came up to you and it's like, hey, I want to write a biography of you. And you were like, dang, that's awesome. This man wants to write a biography of me. Like, okay, in my biography, you are an astronaut um, who uh, has failed at relationships. And because you're so bad at relationships, you live with 19 cats, which is the ultimate sign of failure in life, right? So you're like, this is you. And you're like, uh... I'm scared of heights I am really more of a dog person and I'm actually not bad at relationships they're like yeah but you're so much more interesting the way that I have you you would go from being honored about their biography to being insulted right because you're like that version doesn't exist what's wrong with the real me how do you think God feels when we're like you know I kind of need you to be like this and this is how I want you to be and this is what my Jesus would be like he's not a -a build-a-bear God where you assemble the deity that makes you feel warm at night. He's not a Burger King God where you have Him your way. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So see, go back through these gods. Goosebumps, God, He doesn't exist. Smooth sailing God, on-demand God, killjoy God, anti-science God, gap God, guilt God, coexist God, they don't exist. And some of you have walked away from one of these distortions of God. And I want to say again to you, congratulations on leaving them. They never existed. They're like Cupid or Casper the friendly ghost, they're just figments of somebody's imagination. I want to invite you to consider the real God, the God that's revealed to us by Jesus, the God that, that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a God whose promises are better than temporal feelings. A God whose promises were given in Scripture and then validated by Jesus death on the cross and his resurrection a God who says yes I'm not just out to make your life smooth I've got bigger purposes for you I'm conforming you to my glory and I died for you to get rid of your sin and I resurrected and I want you to learn to experience my power in the midst of pain I'm not an on-demand God who simply gives you what you need as if you know everything I know more than you and you can trust me because I'm your father and as your father, I, 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 you, you, can, you can know that sometimes I give you what you would have asked for if you knew what I knew. I'm not a killjoy God. I'm the God who created joy. I'm the God who cared so much about your joy that when you had put yourself in misery, I came and I rescued you. I'm not an anti-science God. I'm the God who said that the heavens declare the glory of God. And that by studying the heavens, you can actually learn more about my glory. I'm not a God who hangs guilt over your head. I'm a God who took your guilt into myself so that I could liberate you and set you free. I'm not just a coexist God because I don't want to exist with things that are not true. I'm inviting you, God says, to follow me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The central Christian confession, listen to this. The central Christian confession has always been that Jesus is who he says he is because he rose from the dead here's the question do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is I'm not asking you what your opinions about God or how they measure up to mine I'm not asking your IQ compared to mine who's smarter who's more moral I'm not asking that I'm just asking you is Jesus who he said he was because here's what Jesus said Jesus said that your problem is that you're separated from God all your other problems in life come from that one core problem But God cared so much about you. He didn't want to leave you that way. He came to earth to rescue you. And he says, whosoever will, will, if they receive this, I will restore them to God and I will guide them all the way into eternity. Have you ever done that? This whole series has been about genuine faith in the true God. Some of you over the last three weeks have, have had that faith confirmed, right? You've had it coming in, but it's been confirmed. Others of you. I know have found faith during these last three weeks and like I told you at the beginning we want to give you a chance to express that if you never have by getting baptized as a profession of your faith here's what I said at the beginning I'll just review it baptism is the public ceremony if you will of deciding to follow Jesus it's the official statement Jesus gave us to say that we're going all in it doesn't save you the water that we use is Durham County tap water, Wake County tap water, you're dirtier when you come out than when you went in, okay? But it's, it's like the wedding ring. I always say the wedding ring, it just tells everybody else about the commitment I've made to my wife. Baptism is telling everybody else, I choose to identify with Jesus. It's something Jesus said you are to do as a public expression of your faith. Again, you say, well, it's just a ritual, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. How are you gonna tell me that you're gonna follow Jesus in all the hard places for the rest of your life if you're not willing to obey him in this one area? We got brand new Christians who have never taken this step and we have some of you that have been Christians for a long time, but for whatever reason, you've just never taken the step to be publicly baptized as a declaration of your faith. Some people say, well, I got baptized as a baby and I wanna say this again. We thank God for the faith of your parents and what they expressed when they baptized you. They were saying, we hope, that they grow up to follow Jesus, and you have. And now you can be baptized as a public declaration ratifying their faith. Every single baptism in the New Testament without exception is always somebody expressing their own faith, never somebody expressing faith for somebody else. All right, so you gotta, if you were baptized as a baby, you need to publicly ratify that and agree with it and just say, Jesus, I confess that you are Lord and Savior. So we give you a few times a year, we'll do this. We'll give you a chance just to on the spot, make this decision. Let's remove all the excuses. Let's remove this, you're like, well, I can't schedule it. You're here today, all right? We can do it right now. So in just a minute, I'm gonna pray for you. And we're gonna do, we're gonna stand up like we did last week. They're gonna be pastors and counselors and um, they're gonna be all through the aisles at whatever campus. In fact, I'll go ahead and have them get in place now. And when I stand you up, if you need to be baptized, I just want you to come. Maybe you got questions about it. We're just gonna start a conversation. What's going to happen is that person you meet in the aisle is going to take you to a place where they're going to just talk with you for just a few minutes make sure you understand man if you got questions or um you take need to take some time then it's an easy off-ramp we can say let's let's postpone this for a while let's just start the conversation don't delay and put off to tomorrow what you need to start today okay let me pray for you and then I'll, i'll give you a chance to come father i pray i pray in this moment for people to have courage God, I know that if they'll take that first step of obedience, that you'll take over from there. So I pray that you give them power in this moment to do what you're calling them to do. Give them faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how this is gonna happen. I'm gonna stand you up together in just a second. And in one motion, don't even hesitate. Just stand up and start to move. The person beside you will step back and they'll go out. Like I said last week, nobody should come alone. You take the person that brought you or that you're here with and just go together. If the person next to you looks nervous, just put your hand on them and say, I'll be happy to go with you so you don't go alone. Let me tell you how this always works. The hardest step is the first. You feel like I can't do it. I don't wanna be too weird or mystical, but here's what I've seen. The moment you take that first step, it's like the Holy Spirit takes over and says, I got it from here. First step is yours, every other step is his. So in a minute, when I stand you up, why don't you try that first step and tell me if I'm not telling the truth. Take a first step and watch him just begin to give you the strength to take every step after that, okay? So don't hesitate, come with somebody. Right now, kind of tap each other in the leg. I'm going, you're going with me, the whole deal, okay? At all of our campuses, I'm gonna count to three. Summit, when we do, we're gonna applaud as we stand up because we're celebrating those who have already been baptized and those who are gonna be baptized in the services to come. Here we go, one, two, three. Stand to your feet and let's put our hands together. And let's celebrate, you come right now. Left, right, you come forward, we will meet you and take you. Put your hands together, let's celebrate.